The scripture today is from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, if you're new to it. Um, it will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Genesis chapter 19, verses 23 through 29. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land and ascended like smoke from a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow and he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. It's Katie. Good morning, church. We're going to continue our series in Genesis. If you're a visitor, we're so grateful you're here with us. And we've been studying the book of Genesis for many months. And Genesis gives us the foundations of why the world is the way it is. Down to the beauty, to the ashes. Why is there such a thing as a war in Israel right now and in Palestine? Why is our marriages can be broken or so hard? Every little thing you can think of finds its origin in Genesis. And if you understand Genesis, you're then rooted into reality. You have something solid to hold on to in the midst of a world that has no clear answer of why we are the way we are and why and how in the world can we find any resolution and solution. And so not only do you learn about the roots, but you learn about the good God, creator God, that's going to make all things new. And today, the passage we're going to be looking at today is going to be a challenge to all of us at some level. For some of us, it's going to be a challenge, especially if you are prone towards mercy. If your heart is a heart that is disposed towards mercy, which is a good thing, you may struggle this morning because you're going to see a God that is more wrathful than any of us would feel comfortable with. It will maybe offend you and insult you. This story about Sodom and Gomorrah is the typical story that people will talk about from the Old Testament to point that God in the Old Testament is a wrathful God. He's not a God of love. This is a story that even unbelievers and those who do not believe that this is actually true and historical and God's word would, would reference as evidence that God is not trustworthy or good. He's wrathful. And yet there's a Another side of this coin, a sneakier side, because some of us are offended towards God's wrath, and there are some of us here who are offended towards God's grace and love. Especially if you come from a fundamentalist, legalistic background, if you actually comprehend what actually we see in this text, there's offense on the other side. That God's grace is so scandalous, so absurd, so seemingly unfair that the other side of the aisle here may feel offended as well. It does not feel right. And let me just tell you this. If your God doesn't bother you at some level, you can have certainty that that is not the God of the Bible. 
that is not a God that is infinite and incomprehensible and greater than you, that, that somewhere along the line you have taken this God and you've domesticated him, you have remade him into an image that fits your sensibilities, that is just the right amount of this and just the right amount of that. And what we see with this God in this text today is a God that insults both sensibilities and that we know that you're actually worshiping the true biblical creator God when his wrath feels like it's too much and simultaneously his grace feels like, feels like it's too much. And so that's what we're going to see in this text. We're going to see this God who's both the judge of the wicked in great wrath and yet the God that rescues undeserving sinners. And when we comprehend this God, we ought to flee to him and to his arms and flee away from the world. So let me catch you up where we've been. For those of you who are visiting, especially with a special baptism today, I see a handful of visitors and some old friends. Welcome. We've been in Genesis, like I said, and up to this point, we see that God has had this special conference that he initiated with Abraham because Abraham is a priest. And because Abraham is his chosen priest, he's working with Abraham to bring about his plans on the earth. So he unfolds his plans to Abraham. And this is so significant because remember, at the very beginning of why he called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we learned that Abraham is called in order for him to be a what? Blessing. A blessing. To be a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. And so he is calling Abraham into his secret council, telling him what he's about to do because Abraham is about part of bringing blessing to the nations. So that means that whatever God does in Genesis, in, this, in his plans, and whatever he does even now, whether it's the little seemingly insignificant things of our life or the big, very big things like wars, it all should be seen through a lens of how God is ultimately going to bring blessing to all peoples. So I think that's really important to make clear. Whatever God does, it must be seen through the lens that he in his infinite wisdom is using that so that he can bring ultimate blessing and shalom to all the world. And I just want to make a clarification because I take very seriously that I'll be held accountable for my words. Last week, I said something stupid. I said, what does Sabbath mean? And I had you guys repeat, and I said, it means peace. And my wife told me later, I said that immediately. I was like, oh, I'm so stupid. And I talked to the elders and they're like, yeah, we all caught it. I don't know what you're doing. Okay. So Sabbath does not mean peace. So if on Sabbath, if you say to someone Shabbat Shalom, you're saying, I want peace with you on this Sabbath. Sabbath is rest, stopping. Okay. Just, I want to clarify. I I misled you guys last week. Um, uh, So that's just a side note. Okay. All right, so don't tell someone, you know, positively, like, Sabbath means peace. Okay, it doesn't. So, so real clear, real quick. So, whatever God's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah and everything he does in our life, it's all through the lens of ultimate redemption on this earth, reversing the curse, and bringing shalom, peace, on to this world. And so, he shares this news with Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry is so great. They have been sinning for hundreds of years that generationally, and it's so bad, the oppression and the wickedness is so bad that God must judge. And he sends some angels. Those angels come into uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. They hang out with Lot. Lot brings them into their home, and we see one of the most frightening uh, scenes in all of history where a, all the men, it says both young and old, of the city come to Lot's house and demand to sleep 
and essentially gang rape these visitors who they think are just men, but they're actually angels. These angry mob try to get in. Lot does the most horrific, maybe one of the most horrific things that ever recorded in history to save his skin and his guests. He, he offers his daughters to this mob to do whatever they want with them. And, and what we see, Pastor Ross made this note, that the angels come out, they blind all these people so they're all groping around in darkness as a physical symbol of what is spiritually happening. These men in Sodom are blind spiritually, and they're out in the darkness. And so there's this physical illustration of showing what's actually on the inside. And so then Lot leaves with his family and flees to Sodom. Okay, so now we're in our text. Okay, so that's the background for the visitors or for all of us by way of remembrance. So... Verse 23 on the screen, screen, then the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord, or Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. We learn here in verse 23 that the sun had risen. So the angel said, we won't bring the destruction until you get to the city called Zor. And so the sun rises and then destruction comes. So what does that mean? It means that Lot fled when? What time of day? Night. I didn't know that. I didn't, I'm not clever. I didn't figure that out. Someone told me that. But that's, that's the striking imagery that in the middle of the night, they are fleeing for their life. And it's not like they have like these great LED flashlights. They're stumbling. It's, it's chaotic. It's confusing. But they're told, don't look back. You could easily say, hey, but God, what about in the morning when we have some light and it's easy? No, no. Flee at night for your life, no matter the cost. And we hear this term, rained. Then the Lord rained. It's not water. He's raining sulfur and, and fire. That same term, rained. When was the last time we heard the word rained in the Bible? Remember, Genesis is always referring backwards. The flood. In the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking giving a marriage, just going about their merry life, not knowing that their wickedness was about to come to an end. And just like Yahweh reigned upon those, all of the earth during the days of Noah, he is now reigning again, except this time it's not water, but sulfur and fire. However, just like Noah, remember how Noah was introduced in Genesis? It said, that the whole generation was wicked, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor is also translated grace. Keep that in mind for later. This judgment came suddenly, but it shouldn't feel so sudden. Because if you remember, this, they were warned for generations We could easily say, God, why did you give them one more warning? But we're talking generations of generations of this wickedness. And I want you to remember chapter 14. Do you remember that giant king who came with all these kingdoms? They came and actually sacked um, Sodom and Gomorrah, and they, they took all the people, and they enslaved them. Do you guys remember this? Chapter 14? His name is King Chedolamar. Something like that, right? He takes these people and he enslaves them. And yet God in his kindness, using Abraham, rescues the people of Sodom out of slavery. And what did the people do? They didn't turn from their wicked ways. It didn't humble them. They actually became like their captors, hardened their hearts, and actually 
amplified their sin and amplified oppression upon people. They had lots of chances to wake up. There's been generations of this. And I want you to note something that that easily we could just overlook if we don't actually think about this. Who reigned? What What did the text say? Go back. The Lord reigned. From the Lord out of heaven. I mean, if, if you can't be more emphatic than that, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It is God who's doing this. God is doing this. And the text said, all the inhabitants, you have to sit on that for a moment. Don't just overlook that reality. Yahweh rained fire and sulfur upon the city. And that includes both the young and old men who try to gang rape Lot and his family, as well as the wives children, the people. We hear when Abraham is in this secret council with God, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right or just? And so if you have that in mind, whatever God does, it will ultimately just. So God in his perfect wisdom deems that every single person in this city and the cities in the area were deserving of judgment. And that may not settle right with us. And in one sense, it shouldn't. But this is the unadulterated God of the Bible, and we must accept him and receive him as he is, not what we want him to be. This God is willing to bring judgment upon an entire city. And this historical event is an example, not just for us to learn about the character of God, but for us to take heed ourselves. Let me bring your attention to 2 Peter 2.6. There's a lot that 2 Peter 2 has to talk about Lot, and we're only going to touch on a few pieces. There's more, and if you have questions about some of the controversy there, I'd be happy to talk to you. But look at verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, why? Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so what is this saying? It's saying that Sodom and Gomorrah is a temporary real historical event to warn us of an, another real eternal event. It is a living memorial to remind all of us the fate for anybody who does not turn and trust in Yahweh and keep and hold on to their ways. This horrific judgment we read right here is supposed to be a mercy for us today to wake up so that doesn't have to be our fate. If you are wise, there are two types of people. There are the people in the world who are wise because they learn from other mistakes and other people's hardships. And then there's all the rest of the people who have to learn it from themselves. And you don't have to learn it for yourself. You can learn from this and say, I don't want that to be my reality and my fates. At the end of this sermon, I'm going to make it crystal clear how all of us can avoid such a similar fate and what God has done to make it possible. Now, let's look at something just as tragic, if not, I would argue, more tragic than the destruction of these cities. Let's look at Lot's wife, verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. What's going on here? This is a weird passage. First of all, we, I want to remind you of a, 
command that was given by the angels last week in verse 17. It'll be on the screen. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or, listen, stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Those are some key words there to keep in mind. So she disobeyed. She looked back. But, I mean, wouldn't you look back? <laughs> I mean, come on. Wouldn't you look back? Like, what's going on there, right? I, I, I think I'd look back, right? I'm just curious. And I think Jesus helps us, as he usually does. He references this moment in history when he speaks about the coming judgment. <clears throat> look at Luke 17. This passage helped me a lot. I'm going to fly through some of it, but highlight the end. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, Jesus being the Son of Man. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, listen to this, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. You can hear the similar language right here. Don't turn back. Other translations make it clear by saying, do not return home or go back for anything. In other words, when judgment is coming, the safest, wisest plan of action is not to go try to get your stuff or go back just in case, but to flee into the arms of God. The language here makes me think that Lot's wife likely made her way back towards the cities. Hence why the angels said in verse 17, don't stop anywhere. It wasn't just a glance back and God's like, gotcha, boom, you know? That's, that's kind of what I thought growing up. I was like, man, that's kind of harsh, God. Like, just curious. But it was rather a looking back because her heart was looking back. And she was moving because the body follows the heart. Your actions follow what's in your heart. So she wanted to go back to Sodom for various reasons. And this, I think, must be the case because the destruction, according to the angels, wouldn't happen until they get into Zor. So Lot and his daughters were safe in Zor, but Lot's wife was no longer safe, and she was out exposed and no longer under the protection of God. Because why? She removed herself from the protection of God. What is this whole pillar of salt language? Like, that's not like a common language that we have in the world. Well, according to one scholar, he speculates that at this point of day, they could have been about 10 miles away, according to the geography and how long it would take to travel. So there was a, so what, what, what it probably seemed like happened was that there's this fire and sulfur that came upon the cities, and there's a blast radius. That's why the pastor said, you'll be swept away. So the brunt of it was right in the midst of the city, but then there's a blast radius. And will you remember uh, what happened in the island of Pompeii? Do you guys remember how excavations have found bodies that were just like petrified because of the volcanic, uh, all the scientific stuff there that just fill in the blank? I forgot the words. And these bodies were like preserved. I think something similar happened. She's moving her way back, and there's this blast radius. So she's not actually back in Sodom, but she's near enough that she's swept away in the midst of her looking back and moving towards it. She is petrified and turned into a, this pillar of salt. I, I want us to consider Lot's wife and her actions and her life. She may be a Sodomite. There's no record of her before this time. And so maybe... 
as Lot moved closer to closer to Sodom, maybe he moved in and, and maybe he found a wife there. But that's speculation. But what we do know is that she had a love for Sodom. Love for the city, love for their ways, love for her home. And maybe she was disturbed by Sodom. She wasn't disturbed enough. Consider that she had witnessed generations of a history of a people who oppress others. And consider how she saw the, the men of Sodom trying to gang rape her family. And how the men were then struck blind. And yet with all that, she still wanted to go back. Even more, consider that because Lot was Abraham's nephew, they probably visited. So she was able to see the significant contrast of light and dark as she would visit Abraham's family. And he would, she would see the, the light and the life and the love in that family. And despite being so close to life, she still wanted death. And we could sit there and scoff at her. What an idiot. What a dummy. Why would you go back when you saw all that? All right? I mean, honestly, isn't that a rational thing to think? It's just to judge her harshly? But you know who she reminds me of? Me. She reminds me of me. She reminds me of me when I experience the significant mercy and grace of God. I have an encounter for God. I'm like, God, I'll never go back. And then I go back the next day. I'll never say that again. And I say it. I'll never look. And I look. She reminds me of me in part. I'm not saying I'm doing the same thing as her, and I'm not saying you're doing the same thing as her, but doesn't she remind us of us, where we have such an encounter of the beauty of goodness of God, and yet we forget it so quickly. And we see the horrors of sin. I can't tell you how many people I've walked with who they've experienced such tragedy in their sin and so much brokenness, and they're crying, and they're crying, because I'll never go back. I'll never want to taste this death. And they're back in that death, death just a day later. I've seen it over and over again in others, and I've seen it in myself. And God help us from having this judgmental heart towards Lot's wife when that has been so many of our pattern. The problem was is that she didn't believe enough. See, because if you actually believe your city is going to be destroyed, no way are you going to go back. So in some part of her heart, she believed with doubt that this this isn't going to really happen. I said earlier that her fate was more tragic than Sodom. Why? Because she was almost saved. How tragic is it to be so close to life and yet perish? How tragic is to know the way and perish still? This reminds me of 2 Peter. 2 Peter verse 20, 21. Would you read this out loud with me? And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. Oh, what a sobering, sobering, sobering passage Oh, what a fate to know life and to know the sweetness of God's kindness and mercy and then walk away. So close to salvation, but not saved. Church, remember Lot's wife in the words of Jesus. Remember her life. Remember her fate. Her statue is a memorial to remind us what ultimate Sodom brings. It brings death. 
the ways of the world will ultimately bring death, even though it promises you everything. Remember Lot's wife, church. She didn't fully believe. She doubted, and it cost her everything. Remember Lot's wife. Her fate warns us of what will happen to any of us here if we go back, if we fall into the the lie in the siren's voice that it would be better. Just like what Israel felt about Egypt. You remember they would say, it was better back when we were in Egypt. We were slaves, but we had food. It was good. And what happens when we are far away from a situation, our mind starts to forget how bad it was and romanticize it. And then it starts to sound pretty good to us. When in actuality, it was horrible. And that's what happens. So I want to call you to avoid even going towards that direction. Why? Well, because what often happens is when people return after experiencing the grace of God, their heart doesn't return like it used to be. Their heart doubles down in hardness because they've tasted and seen the Lord was good. We've seen this before. It's not you go back and you're kind of a better version of your previous self. You go back and you go further into sin that you never did before. The heart gets that much harder, that much more rebellious. And it's so much harder to come back because the shame is so deep. The shame is so deep. I can't tell you how many people have left the Lord over the years in this community. And when I talk to them, there's a part of them wants to come back, but then they believe the lie that it's too far gone for them. The shame is too deep. There's no way. God would forgive me. There's no way your community would love them. And I try to tell them, we will love you. We love you still. We will invite you back. We will hold you back. We'll bring you back. We love you. God loves you. He's still for you. But at that point, their heart has become so hard and they can't believe the promises anymore. Don't risk that. Don't put yourself in that kind of situation where you have to fight through that kind of hardness. So, so, so church, if you see your gaze drifting back, if you start having these fantasies that it was better when you were back with him or her, or back when you lived that kind of lifestyle. Oh man, the, man, if, if I was just could be part of the world and do this or that, they have it so easy. They have it so good. Remember Psalm 73. Remember their fate. Remember Lot's wife. If you start to see yourself making compromises, moving towards the world, wake up, church. Remember Lot's wife. Turn back and flee from danger. And now I'm, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. And that's, I'm going to specifically challenge a group of people here. I don't normally do this, as you know. But there are unique lessons to learn for the husbands and the fathers from the failures of Lot's leadership. Husbands and fathers in this room, do you realize, my brothers, that you have great influence and responsibility over your family? Do you realize that? I know you know that, but do you Realize that. Feel that reality. You set the pace and the tone for your home. And certainly, let me make it clear, we cannot control our families no matter how much we want at times. And at the end end of the day, you could do everything right and your kids can turn out poorly. And you could do everything wrong and by God's grace, your kids turn out to be fantastic. And although there are exceptions, you don't want to let your family be the exception, do you? Some of the godliest women I know are mar- married to the most passive men I know. And it's not because of them, it's despite them, the mercy of God. 
So I want to address the husbands and the fathers here directly, and hopefully that doesn't alienate all those who are not husbands and fathers, but because this is so important for us to learn from Lot's life. See, Lot, chapters ago, prioritized greed. He was given two options in the promised land, and he chose neither of them. He chose the land that he saw fit. In his eyes, he saw and he took that which would benefit him most financially. He moved himself out of the promise. He prioritized physical blessing over the blessing of knowing Yahweh and being with Abraham in that protection, in that favor. Then he moved right near Sodom. And he was clearly not ignorant of how wicked this, the, the city was because he even says in 2 Peter that he was grieved by him. And yet he was not grieved enough because he eventually moved into the city. And 2 Peter also says that day and day night, day over, what am I saying? Day and day Day in, day out. Thank you. He was tormented. His soul was tormented by the wickedness of the city. But his soul wasn't tormented enough to take his family and flee. He waited and he lingered. And you can imagine, Lot, if you talk to him, you're like, Lot, what are you doing? You're leading your family astray. And you could even hear Lot rationalize, well, you know, someone's got to be a light to them. Or maybe he'll say something like, you know, there's so many amenities of the city. I don't want to live, the, I don't want to live, I don't want tent camp. Right? I want to glamp, right? Like I want to, I want to be near where there's amenities. My, my kids need sports. There's no sports out there. They need opportunities. Sodom has it all, and we can still love Yahweh and, and still be part of the world, but it's, it's okay. And so he, he started to rationalize in his mind. He stopped praying. He stopped forgetting that, that his life is not his own. And little by little, he compromised, and he found himself more and more becoming like Sodom. Because remember, you're either being actively discipled, by Jesus, or you're being actively discipled by the world. There is no neutral. Both are happening, one or, one or the other are happening at every minute. And my brothers, what ways can we be like Lot? Perhaps we make decisions that will have significant ramifications on our time, our money, and our energy without regard to how that affects spiritually if that's what God really wants, if that, that really honors him, that really would be best for our relationship with him, that would be best for his kingdom. We, 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 we make these decisions on our own, what would be best for us, and then, in retrospect, ask God to bless it. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, hey, Sam, we're moving. Oh, no, oh, no. what's going on? Hey, we're gonna miss you. Yeah, I got this job. It makes more money. And that's the trump card. Oh, it makes more money. Therefore, automatically, of course, it's a decision made, more money means that it's an automatic decision, right? And I'm like, no, but, but I'm trying to encourage them. Do you, do you have a church you're going to be part of? No, no, not yet. We'll figure it out. So what are they doing? Prioritizing physical blessing and hoping that spiritual blessing will just come out, kind of fit in, right? Instead of organizing our whole life and decisions around God, we are organizing God around our decisions in our life. So Husbands, fathers, our decisions that we make with our career, where we live, our money, our hobbies, if we do not prioritize and seek first his kingdom, you are modeling for your families what good priorities should look like. You are modeling for your families that God can get the crumbs as long as you get your peace. And perhaps you're not intentional about how you're guarding what goes into your family what they listen to, what they watch. I'm not calling you to be fundamentalist Puritans. What I'm saying is, are you careful and thoughtful of how that's affecting and shaping your family? 
I just discovered this last week. One of my children were secretly watching tons of stuff on YouTube. And you know what? That's on me. That I was so slack with, with allowing devices without any thoughtfulness. And I'm not saying we shut down all devices. I'm not talking about being, you know, uh, Amish. What I'm saying, are you thoughtful about and guarding what goes through the, the windows of, of their, their eyes into their souls? Are you prayerful about that? That's on me. That was going on for two months. And it was shaping them. And they were asking weird questions. We're like, where'd you hear that? And they're like, and they just made it up where they heard it. They lied about it. I'm not going to get into too many specifics because you need the Holy Spirit to help apply it to your family and your season and your life. And I don't want to legalistically legalistically impose something on you and bind your conscience. But you got to seek the Lord. Like, what are we going to be about in our family? What are we going to prioritize? What are we going to let in? And what are we going to do? Families, like husbands, fathers, your family follows you either in your passivity or in your bold, humble leading. So I just want to call you, men, are you rightfully guarding your families in the right ways in the world's influences? Now, I want to bring everything to, to a head now. We're going to skip verse 28 because it's just Abraham witnessing the destruction. Um, but if you think hard about all that's taking place, all that we've talked about, I think some of us here should be bothered that Lot is saved. Think about it. I mean, I want to use some harsh words about him. I take very seriously. I have three daughters. It is unthinkable offering my daughters up to a mob to to save my skin. And yet he's saved. He's saved. He actually lingers, remember? And the angels grab his arms and are like, hey, we gotta go. God helps him along because he lingers. God saved Lot and his family. Are you serious? And you're gonna hear more about how messed up he is next week. And God saved Lot? Why? Why would God save Lot? Well, look, look at verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Why did God save Lot? Because God remembered Abraham. He remembered Abraham's prayers. Remember, Abraham is being a priest. A priest represents God to people and people to God. And, God, and, and, and Lot is pray, being prayed for by Abraham. So, so it's less about Lot being so great and earning salvation and earning mercy, but more because Abraham is praying for him, and therefore, like Noah found grace and favor, Lot finds grace and favor in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation. But, but again, just like that, just like that, because Abraham prayed, is it that easy? Well, Lot did believe he believed he, he, he didn't like stay, like he did go along with it. So at some level, he had true faith, saving faith in that moment. He believed. Is it that simple? That should be in some sense offensive that God would be so merciful and gracious to such a slime ball like Lot after him doing probably one of the worst things of his life. He must pay, right? He must pay for all that he's done. It's, it's not fair. And you know what? 
Lot is like me. And Lot is like you. I must pay. You must pay. It can't be that simple that God just washes away your sins and says, you're great. You're forgiven. Grace abounds. It can't be that simple. You deserve to be punished. You deserve Sodom and Gomorrah. I deserve Sodom and Gomorrah for my sin and all the ways I've fallen short. And yet here's the good news. Here's the good news. We have a better priest praying for us than Abraham. Look at Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus, he, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, the high, great high priest, the perfect righteous one, is praying for you and me. And not only praying for you and me, he pays for the debts that you and I must pay. He's not just a priest who prays. He's a priest who offers up himself to be the sacrifice for you and for me. What a great scandal is this. What kind of God is this? That is it true that he's that just and, merciful, and, and, and wrathful? Yes. And is it yet also simultaneously true that he's that gracious and loving? Yes, our God is both. And we should feel both the weight and the terror of how great the wrath of God is deserving upon us sinners and yet simultaneously feel the greater weight of God's grace towards us. Remember, when Moses has an encounter with Yahweh, what does God say about who he is? Yahweh, Yahweh, a a Lord who is gracious and merciful. God's heart is Weighted towards grace and mercy, even though he's a God of justice. So, while this offer is certainly available for all peoples, remember Genesis 12, the blessing is for all nations, all people. It is not automatically applied to all people. You must do two things simultaneously. You must flee from the world, which is another way of saying repentance. Turn away from yourself, turn away from the world, turn away from your control. And then simultaneously put your hope and trust in Jesus. Neither can you do one without the other. And if you put your hope and your trust and you take asylum, you will be safe in his arms because he already died for your punishment. There's no more punishment left for you and you can experience the unfathomable, scandalous grace and forgiveness of God that you do not deserve, but God is happy to give. But if you reject the asylum, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Listen, if you do not trust in Jesus, you're not actively falling and hoping in him and you're living and loving Sodom, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah will be worse for you. That kind of fate will be upon you, except it will be forever, not a moment. So if you want this great high priest, you want this God who is both just and loving, you can have him. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Please grab me after the gathering. I'd love to pray with you.